Uh, that can be found on page 1143 in the church Bibles. I thought it would be a bit mean to get them to read the whole chapter out, so I'll do that. And then Richard's going to come up the front and preach for us. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except for their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. I would have thought, Carlos, that you would know how to get to the book of 1 Corinthians. It was quite clever what you did there, getting the kids uh, get there for you. <laughs> oh, good morning. It's good to see that none of you have evaporated or spontaneously combusted with the heat. Some might be starting to lose their minds. I, uh, I see the parents up there looking a little wild-eyed and unhinged. Maybe give them a wide berth. Nonetheless, it's great to have you here this morning as we open up Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We're going to make our way through chapter 2. And in this chapter, Paul addresses the difference between human wisdom and godly wisdom. And he gives us the key to finding this godly wisdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning would you open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts to your word. Give us fresh insight and a deeper understanding of your word. 
May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Do you ever stumble over your words or struggle to find the right thing to say? Well, that's because you're a normal person. But Paul, the author of this letter to the church in Corinth, was not like you or me. He was not a normal person. He was an oratory giant. We see him speaking and writing some of the most expressive and powerful passages known to the literary world. He's entered into the midst of Greek and Roman culture in first century Corinth. This society prided itself in knowing things and telling people that they know things. There wasn't really any way in which one could gain any sort of audience in that city unless you could prove your smarts or had a stunning track record. Surely there would not have been a setting in which Paul would have felt more confident. Paul said that the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. Well, wisdom he could give them. He was highly educated in Greek schools and in the highest levels of Judaism. And he was happy to take on anyone in debate. So that's what makes the opening of this chapter so unusual. He says he came in weakness with great fear and trembling. And he did not present his message with wise or persuasive words. Why on earth not? Had he missed a trick here? When speaking in a society that venerated eloquence of speech, why not give the crowd what they want? Would that not have been the best way for him to get his message across? Well, perhaps the very reason that Paul stripped away everything from his message that pointed towards himself was so that nothing could distract from the person he was preaching about. He was resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And why did he come in fear and trembling? Had he lost his confidence? I mean, it could be said that after the ridicule and death threats and severe beatings that he had received in other cities on this trip, he might not have exactly relished the thought of doing it all over again in Corinth. But I believe that the reason that Paul um, shuddered with dread was the importance of the message that he carried and because of who he represented. Paul took his duty seriously, knowing that God went with him. Now, According to Jesus' instruction to go and make disciples of all nations, we, the church, carry the same same mantle as Paul. We, too, should resolve to know only Jesus Christ and him crucified. In practice, this means not relying on our own skill to articulate the gospel message, but instead relying on the gospel itself. There's a song called Part the Clouds by Jimmy Needham, and it has the words, The gospel looks so very cold one night as I passed by, so I gave it my best sugar coat and I dressed it in a lie. This living water will not quench us if it's watered down. It's not our place to hide again this treasure that we've found. When we add our own flourish to the gospel, we only water it down. We dilute it. In chapter 1 of this letter, Paul says that this runs the risk of emptying the cross of Christ of its power. 
Those are some serious words. We should never soften the message of the gospel or apologize for it. Verse 6. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. Now here, I don't believe that Paul is saying that conventional wisdom has no value, but rather it has limitations that must be recognized. Human wisdom has no power to answer the really big questions. It cannot speak to the questions of pain or purpose. It cannot explain love. Ultimately, it cannot affect lasting change in our lives. I love uh, listening to experts talk about things like the universe and quantum physics. Things that I don't understand. But I do find fascinating. A couple of months ago, I was watching a documentary called A Trip to Infinity. Some of you may have seen it. Watching these scientists wrestle with ideas that the human mind struggles to comprehend, I recommend that you don't spend too long thinking about the concept of infinity if you wish to retain your sanity. But listen to this quote from one of the experts interviewed. For me, infinity is not scary. I find infinity beautiful and haunting and thrilling. I love infinity. I guess if I start thinking that I'll be dead forever, there's a side to me that's worried about it, but then again, I don't plan to be thinking about it. Wait, did I miss something here? Imagine a possum, humor me here, imagine a possum saying, those bright, dazzling orbs, I find them beautiful and haunting and thrilling. I love them. I guess... If I start thinking that they're attached to a truck traveling 100 kilometers an hour right towards me, there's a side to me that's worried. But then again, I don't plan to be thinking about that. (laughs) I think we'd agree there's something wrong with that possum. At some point, conventional wisdom runs aground. Paul is saying that we must not give this wisdom a position that it does not deserve. And human wisdom left to itself becomes resistant to the message of the gospel. The gospel sounds like foolishness to those that don't have the spirit of God. The natural man cannot receive or understand anything beyond the material world. And so he must reduce all explanations of existence, love, and moral values to chemical reactions and societal conditioning. The world around us today is often okay with us preaching Jesus. Great guy, great guy. He was a wise dude for sure. Yeah, right up there with Buddha. But what offends the senses and sounds to them like closed-minded foolishness is Christ crucified. Because of what it implies. If someone accepts the cross, then what else must they accept as a result? So, If human wisdom holds no power, what is the alternative? Look at verse 7. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that's been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. Paul says that none of the rulers of this age understood it. 
What is this mystery that has been hidden from the world? It is nothing less than God's plan for the redemption of humanity. First alluded to in Genesis when God promised that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent. Then we see the entire narrative of scripture pointing towards this plan. In fact, this mystery is the focus of the Bible. It is the gospel, the wisdom of God. It is all written there by prophecy and pattern, which is then revealed in Christ, foretold and ordained from the beginning of time. But the mystery of the gospel remains unattainable and undesirable to those relying on human wisdom. To those who pride themselves in human wisdom, they will only find this mystery more and more elusive. Even the forces of evil could not anticipate how the death of the Messiah could lead to a resurrection that is victory over death itself and salvation for God's people. That's why Paul paraphrases Isaiah here when he says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God prepared for those who love him. I mean, if you had not heard the gospel, could you have ever concocted such an extraordinary plan? We share in Christ's resurrection, and God destined this for our glory. The more you examine the gospel, the more mind-blowing it becomes. We're not only forgiven of sin, but we're adopted as sons and daughters by God himself. Once this mystery is revealed to us, we receive God's wisdom. As Paul says, we do speak a message of wisdom among the mature. And spiritual maturity is marked not by one's intellect, but by the extent to which they understand and live out the message of the cross. Human wisdom separates and stratifies society, whereas godly wisdom unites. We start by recognizing our common position before the cross. Sinners saved by grace. To have the wisdom of God, we need to understand how he thinks. Verse 6 says that we have the mind of Christ. That's a big claim. We have the mind of Christ. How do we have access to the mind of Christ? How is the chasm between our limited minds and God's infinite mind bridged? By the spirit of truth, verse 10. The spirit searches all things and reveals them to us. As only you can know your own mind, so too only the Holy Spirit can know the mind of God. And because we have accepted Christ, his spirit lives within us. Once we have the gospel... Once we establish it in our hearts as the true center of our existence and meaning, then, and only then, the Spirit of God may lead us into all truth. Verse 6. Without the cross, we do not have the Spirit. P.T. Forsyth calls the cross and the Spirit inseparable bedfellows. The work of the Holy Spirit is woven right throughout this chapter. It is the Spirit that makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Notice how very different the way we get godly wisdom is compared with the way we get worldly wisdom. The wisdom of the world 
is attained through acquiring information and through life experience. But godly wisdom is only achieved through relationship. The saying is true. It's not what you know. It's who you know. So the more we enter into relationship with Jesus, the more we discover the deep things of God to know only Christ crucified, not to know about Christ crucified. Do we know Christ or do we simply know about Christ? God desires relationship with us. Whilst a knowledge of the created world is wonderful, a relationship with the creator himself is far more wonderful. The more we let the Spirit of God reveal to us the mind of Christ by studying his word and meeting him in prayer, the more mature we will become in faith and wisdom. These things will continue to seem as foolishness to those who don't have the Spirit of God. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. And in these matters, a person who has the Spirit cannot be judged by those who do not have the Spirit. So, we see Paul preaching a simple gospel to a city that wants to be dazzled. But he is resolved to know only Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we see that simple gospel changing lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have seen that human wisdom by itself comes to nothing. It ultimately ends in ruin and frustration by its own design. We have seen that true wisdom, godly wisdom, is a mystery to those that are perishing, but to those who have received Christ, it is life because of God's masterful plan as revealed in every book of the Bible. And we've seen that by the Spirit of God, we have the mind of Christ. Through a relationship with Jesus, not intellect or life experience, we are led into all wisdom. I have a friend who I describe as quite the intellectual. Years back, I thought to myself, I'm going to present the gospel to him. Not the, not the basic version, the scientific version. Yeah. I'll show him through evidential proof how the design of the universe, how the accounts of Jesus, and how scripture were undeniable fact. I thought I did a pretty good job. But he wasn't persuaded. Where had I gone wrong, I thought. A couple of years later, he told me that he had become a Christian. He must have taken it upon himself to investigate the matter of proof for faith, I thought. But it wasn't so. It was that simple gospel that had convinced him. His heart had been changed. God had been at work within him despite my efforts and his heart had been changed. His head would follow his heart. Maybe my efforts had contributed to this change, but certainly not the words I had used. It was a work of God from beginning to end. I think at some level we all feel the need to give the gospel a helping hand, right? Subconsciously or consciously, we think it's old and need to bring it up to date. Or we think it's offensive, so we need to make it more palatable, right? Or we think it's culturally irrelevant, so we need to make it more applicable to this day and age. We think the gospel needs defending. Charles Spurgeon said, The word of God is like a lion. 
You don't need to defend a lion. All you need to do is let the lion loose and it will defend itself. We don't need confidence in ourselves. We are not called to convince people, only to obey. Though like Paul we may tremble, we obey. I feel though that we should acknowledge the difficulty we have living as Christians in a secular world. It's like we are speaking a different language. How can we convey our message when many will see our beliefs as a bunch of superstitious nonsense? Can we find some middle ground where we can see eye to eye? How often can you say that you have avoided sharing the gospel with someone because you have thought that you would not present it in a convincing manner or do it justice? Did your perception of your own weakness make you hesitant? What if the words you say cause offense or make that person shut their ears to anyone else who may seek to share the gospel with them in the future? The truth is, we should not expect to be understood by those who view the world through a completely different lens to us. We will experience frustration in our conversations with unbelievers, but we should understand that they will also feel frustrated with our foolishness. So what should our witness look like? How can we talk across this gap? We must step out in humility, with all our weakness, and with confidence that God's word will achieve what he has purposed it to do. In our weakness, he is strong. And remember that we ourselves were convinced not by clever words, but by the power of a loving God working in our hearts by his spirit. When Jesus sacrificed his life, he removed the sin that stood in the way of our knowledge of him. We are called to love people, to show grace as we have received grace. Tim Keller says that in the end, we love people into belief. We do not argue them into belief. Be assured that God's will will be done in the hearts of your hearers. Some will reject your message and see the gospel as nothing more than foolishness. But some will see with blinding clarity the beauty and majesty of God's plan. It will lead them to repentance and surrender that conventional wisdom would never allow. We need to learn persistence and patience, but let's never forget the weight of the message that we carry so that our message won't be with wise or persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. As Revelation says, we don't take away from the gospel. We don't add to the gospel. The gospel is enough. The gospel seems simple and can be expressed in a few short words, but we will spend all eternity unraveling the full implication of Jesus' work on the cross. That's the paradox. The gospel is at the same time incredibly simple and infinitely deep. The wisdom of God is revealed in Christ crucified. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Let's bow our heads. Father, in your great wisdom, you have hidden the truth of the gospel from those who are wise in their own eyes, and you've revealed it to those who have received Jesus. We give you all honor 
and we praise you for your marvellous plan. As we prepare together around your table this morning, may we lay down anything in us that might seek to obscure your gospel. We stand on common ground before you, sinners saved by grace. Give us confidence in the knowledge that when we obey your command to share the good news, it is by your spirit only that people's hearts are changed, not by clever words or convincing arguments. By your wisdom, may we grow in maturity and humility as we seek to know Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen.